When antibiotics fail to fight off an infection, the options are limited. But a treatment that relies on viruses could change the future of healthcare. Literally, I signed the consent form for kidney dialysis the day that phage therapy began. He was literally within a couple hours of death, so we're just really, really fortunate. And we don't take it for granted. Every day is a gift. So he, he was a miracle. He was a miracle, yes. And that miracle is going to hopefully lead to other miracles. Coming up, you might find this story hard to believe. A remedy that's as old as the planet, but a feat of modern medicine in the age of antibiotic-resistant bacteria. We'll learn about bacteriophage therapy. Phage therapy for short. Scientists at the University of California, San Diego, and beyond, think it could win the global fight against superbugs. The World Health Organization says without solutions, drug-resistant diseases could lead to millions of deaths a year by 2050. This is The World to Come, a podcast brought to you by Bank of America, exploring life in the future, starting with the visionaries of today, featuring clients and partners affiliated with Bank of America. I'm Tess Vigland, and in this episode, the power to rethink medical treatment. I think uh, for the healthcare system overall, it's an imperative, and I think we need to be forward-looking on this issue. Antibiotic resistance is one of the major threats to our health in the 21st century. Bank of America Global Research Analyst Patrick Wood studies this issue as part of his work. I lead the medical technology team, and uh, my main role is to look at the healthcare system and understand what it does. What is the definition of antibiotic resistance? What does that mean? Um, Antibiotics are a weapon that we employ uh, to destroy bacteria. And over time, as living organisms that they are, they've evolved if you like, a form of defense. So you can obviously have oral, but also you can have intravenous um, antibiotics. And over time, uh, bacteria gain resistance through exposure. This is very, very problematic for a number of different reasons, not the least clinical outcomes. How did we get here to this point where antibiotics are becoming ineffective? Is it simple overuse or is it does it go beyond that? It's a, it's a plethora of causes. Um, while it's an issue that's been flagged, we've all become quite lazy about it over the last 50 years or so. Um, you can see this in a very acute way when people turn up to their local general practitioner and they say, you know, I don't feel very well, give me antibiotics. And even if that patient actually has a viral infection where antibiotics really won't do much other than destroy your gut flora, in many instances, they still pressure uh, their doctor to prescribe them antibiotics. Is that really the the main problem when you're talking about overuse, is that people are going in and either asking for antibiotics when it, they don't need them, or are doctors for some reason giving them out when they aren't necessary, maybe just to placate a patient? It is a non-inconsiderable proportion of the issue. Um, it's definitely within there. The overexposure, non-completing of your prescription over time, use in agriculture, all of these things have contributed to the, to the issue. I think at the end of the day, they're trying to make sure that we have public discourse about the issue because this is really a public health issue where you need both physicians and uh, you also need the public to be thinking about it and behaving appropriately to control this. This discourse is already happening in earnest at the University of California, San Diego. It was sparked in the wake of a near tragedy that happened to two of its professors who happened to be married. And their journey is changing our understanding of what's possible in medicine. 
Hi, I'm Tom Patterson. And I'm Stephanie Strathy. Tom and Stephanie share a single-story ranch home in La Jolla, California. It's got a cactus garden and a giant picture window out to the backyard with a spectacular view of the Pacific Ocean. And they're not the only ones enjoying the yard. Local wildlife does, too. All these birds, the hawk is after. See this guy? Oh, beautiful. He's a sharp-shinned. That's his nest over there on the top of that tree. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. The view, the birds, all of it became utterly irrelevant a couple of years ago. Tom is a psychiatry professor at UC San Diego School of Medicine, and Stephanie is Associate Dean of Global Health Sciences. She's an infectious disease epidemiologist. Their lives and the direction of their work changed forever after a vacation in 2015. Well, Tom and I have been to about 50 countries together, and on his list was to visit Egypt to see, you know, the wonders of the world and the pyramids, and we'd been there for about a week, and it was the last night of our trip. We just thought, wow, tomorrow we're going to see the Valley of the Kings, and then we go home. Well, it didn't quite turn out that way. Um, Tom got really sick. He, uh, I thought he had food poisoning. What had you been doing that day? I mean, when you thought back, what what were you thinking back on in terms of what might have caused this? Well, I was thinking that it was something he ate for dinner because we had seafood and, you know, we're on the Nile. And um, I was just assuming that he was going to, you know, have a garden variety stomach bug and that, you know, he would ride it out. And he didn't. I just kept getting worse and worse and my back started hurting and I was getting dehydrated. And when they did call... The uh, the doctor came and he said, no, we really got to get you to a clinic. So you get to the clinic and what happens? They medevaced us to Frankfurt, Germany. And there um, they confirmed that he had a giant abscess in his abdomen the size of a football. And that's when I started to get worried, really worried. Tom, are you out of it at this point? By this time, I was beginning, I mean, throughout the illness, I was in and out of a coma and hallucinating. But by the time I got to Germany, I was hallucinating a lot, just out of it. So then the doctors come back and tell you what? They said, look, um, it's the worst news that we could have had. It's the most terrible bacterial infection on the planet. And um, we need to see whether or not it's resistant to multiple antibiotics because this organism tends to be a superbug. A superbug is resistant to more than two or three antibiotics. The results came back on this one, and it was resistant to 15 antibiotics right off the bat. Even as the doctors were treating Tom, the bacteria were becoming more and more resistant to the antibiotics every day. There was only three antibiotics that it was partially sensitive to at the beginning. But by the time we medevaced Tom back home to San Diego, it was resistant to even those. So now it's fully resistant to all antibiotics in the modern medicine's arsenal. What are you thinking at that point? Well, now I was terrified. I was reading on my own, brushing up on microbiology that, you know, I have a degree in microbiology from 35 years ago. So I was, you know, catching up on all of what I'd missed over the last couple of decades and getting more and more terrified. So your doctors tell you that they've run out of options? That's right. Well, they basically said Tom is too weak for surgery. So they said, look, we'll siphon out all of this infected fluid. Hopefully his immune system will be able to kick in and fight it. 
What's the best option we have? And so for a while, the superbug was contained in this abscess. But this one particular day when he sat up in bed, one of the tubes inside of him slipped and it jumped all of that infected fluid into his abdomen and into his bloodstream. And right in front of me, a doctor and a nurse, he went immediately into septic shock. Oh my God. He started sweating profusely and then he began to shake. The bed frame was hitting the wall. About 50% of people who develop septic shock die right then and there. So they rushed him back to the ICU. They put him on a ventilator to help him breathe, which is life support. They put him into a medically induced coma. From that moment on, he was dying a little bit more each day because there was nothing that they could do. Now his body was fully colonized with this superbug. But despite odds that were dropping by the hour, Stephanie refused to give up hope. She asked Tom if he wanted to continue the fight. When it dawned on me that he really was dying, I had a conversation with him, even though he was in a coma. And I said, honey, I know that you're fighting really hard, but I want to grow old with you. And if you want to live, please, please Somehow, could you just squeeze my hand so that I'll know and I can leave no stone unturned. I'll do whatever I can to fight this thing. But the doctors have run out of options. So I waited. And about a minute later, he squeezed my hand really hard. And I was really excited. I, I fist pumped, you know, into the air. I thought, yes. And then I realized, like, what am I going to do now? Like, I don't know how to solve this thing. I'm not a medical doctor, you know. And I thought, well, I'm a scientist and, you know, I can at least research some alternative treatments. And so I went to the internet, up popped a paper, which had several different options that we hadn't thought of. And one was phage therapy. Phage therapy. That's P-H-A-G-E, by the way. Now, it turns out this is an idea that's been around for a long time. Phages are these special viruses. Scientists have known about them for more than 100 years. In fact, they were discovered around the same time as antibiotics. But antibiotics were a lot easier to use and administer. So they became the default treatment for bacterial illnesses like pneumonia and mono and infections of all kinds. As she searched desperately for answers, Stephanie found that research paper taking another look at this science. The paper said, you know, maybe we should give phages another try. I asked Patrick Wood, the Bank of America Global Research Analyst, to explain for us exactly how phage therapy works. In basic terms, uh, it is the use of a viral mechanism, so a virus that, you know, when most people think of a virus, it's something that makes you feel bad or is attacking your body. And that can be the case. But there are a lot of viruses out there. And phage therapy is the use of viruses that attack bacteria. And so they're viruses that are on your side, friendly viruses, if you like. <laughs> That's something I can't even wrap my head around, a friendly virus. So how does that work? I mean, t t talk us through the process of how that works within someone's body. In this instance, your body doesn't recognize the incoming virus as a threat, and so it doesn't attack it, much like your body doesn't attack the natural bacteria that exists in your gut. The virus, it attacks the bacteria, destroys it. And so over time, they attack faster and faster the bacteria that exists within you. The real thing is that your body doesn't recognize them as a threat. That is very important. So again, this is a friendly virus. It only wants to kill bacteria. And it isn't going to make you sick. 
It's like the, the analogy of the lock and the keys because one will only fit uniquely to the other. They're very specifically tailored only to fit the other one. Okay, so the virus that is used in the phage therapy, is that designed specifically for what it's going after, for what it's trying to attack? Yes, so each virus is bespoke, if you like, and unique to the target that it's trying to attack. That is the advantage in that it's a sniper rifle, not a bazooka. Each type of phage has to match a specific type of bacteria. Going back to Stephanie, I wondered how she even began her search for a solution. First of all, you have stumbled upon this potential treatment that is not in wide use. And then the doctors say, well, you need to go, you need to go find the viruses. I'm pretty sure your background is not in virus hunting. So what's your first step at that point? So um, I went back to the internet and I made a list of researchers around the U.S. that were studying these phages that attack his type of bacteria. And um, it was a mighty short list, a handful of researchers, and I wrote every single one of them. And so they did find several phages. You're just in a race against time. We were in a total race against time. His kidneys were just hanging on by a thread. He was still on the ventilators. He was on three different medications to keep his heart pumping. And then his kidneys started to fail. The phages arrived just in time. The big question was how much of it, how many of them, to give him. No American hospital had ever used phages like this before for this purpose. Remember, these are live viruses, living things. Too few, and it might not work. Too many, and, well, nobody knew what might happen. So it was a billion phages per dose. A billion viral particles per dose. And every two hours, we injected these first into the catheters in his abdomen. And then when he survived that, we injected those into his bloodstream every two hours. Are the phages in a syringe and they're just injected into the catheters? Is, that, is it that simple? It was that simple. After that, all Stephanie could do was wait. The phage treatment continued with injections every two hours for the next three days. And then, on the third day... He woke up from a deep coma to awake and conscious and recognizing people. I leaned over him and I said, honey, it's me. And he kissed me. And it was just like my heart melted. And it was like, oh my God. It it blew us all away. Tom, what do you remember, if anything, about that first time you woke up? I remember that it wasn't like in the movies. I do remember being extraordinarily tired and, and uh, you know, I wouldn't say that I was, you know, ready to write another paper for a journal, but <laughs> <laughs> but I was, uh, you know, I was certainly elated to be alive. The phages fought against the antibiotic-resistant bacteria throughout Tom's system. The infection slowly came under control, and Tom was healing. It would take several more weeks of treatment to get it all out of his system. He spent more months in the hospital recovering from the ordeal. So there it was, an experimental treatment using live viruses curing an infection that would have killed Tom. So here's the big question. 
can his experience become the therapy of the future? Heck, we saved you with a 100-year-old forgotten cure that we don't want to have buried for another 100 years. News of Tom's treatment spread quickly throughout the medical community. Stephanie felt she had a new calling. She wanted others, she wanted the world, to benefit from phages. She gave a TED Talk, and she and Tom wrote a book. And alongside doctors at UC San Diego, Stephanie helped establish a research center dedicated to bringing phage therapy to others who need it. It's called the Center for Innovative Phage Applications and Therapeutics, and she serves as co-director. We were getting so many requests from patients all over the world and their doctors and their families for phage therapy. We're fundraising and trying to move phage therapy into clinical trials to show um, whether phage therapy is going to be superior or at least equal to antibiotics. And um, if that's the case, then it will mean that the FDA can license those options for people that are running out of antibiotics. I got to visit the Center for Innovative Phage Applications and Therapeutics, IPATH for short. The FDA gave the center clearance in early 2019 for the very first clinical trial of phage therapy in the United States. Dr. Saima Aslam is one of the primary physicians using the therapy in cases where nothing else is working. She sees and treats antibiotic-resistant infections every day. And we sat down between patient visits in her office. Tom's case really, I feel like, is a seminal event in a good way in that we were able to cure an incurable infection, really, and have him walk out of the hospital and do well. So I think that is a huge, huge deal um, and will affect, you know, healthcare in the U.S. and all over the world, really. Talk about your work with IPATH. So my role is to be one of the main physicians associated with IPATH. We've actually treated a total of seven patients here at UCSD. I've treated five of them. They've all had come to a point where they had lost hope. And I think using bacteriophage therapy gave them hope and certainly led to successful outcomes for all of them. Um, And we've learned from each patient. You know, from Tom's case, we learned we can actually do this. But after the, each after that, we've learned more about dosing. We've learned about how to do this as an outpatient. So all of them, I think, have been seminal in their own way. But certainly, you know, Tom's was a huge deal. What are the challenges facing um, further usage at this point? Is it, is it just simply what we don't know? Or is it a lack of resources? Is it a lack of phages? Well, I think there's certainly no lack of phages. They outnumber bacteria by far. The issue is... I think we need to learn more about it, but we need to learn in a systematic manner. And certainly in terms of FDA clearance, I think we need to do clinical trials um, and try to use them in patients up front and not when they run out of all options. Then our goal is to make it more mainstream. But yeah, I mean, number one would be research uh, and funding for that research. When you look out uh, 10 years, 20 years, 50 years, where do you think phage therapy will fit within medicine? So my hope is that for certain infections, we are able to have these preformed combinations of maybe three or four or five phages that, you know, have good shelf life that you could stock in a pharmacy and actually use it as needed. Um, I think that would be amazing. Phages in the pharmacy and a medication that everyone will someday know about and use. And what about the potential role of phages in the broader healthcare system? Analyst Patrick Wood says there's a bright future for any treatment that can meet or exceed the promise of antibiotics. 
it probably saves a considerable amount of cost, um, mostly by keeping patients out of hospitals um, or in them for a far reduced time. You, you have this situation in many instances where elderly patients are generally advised not to go to hospitals purely because picking up a resistant infection can be a serious, serious issue for them. With more effective treatment, you don't have that same issue. At the end of the day, when you have a better clinical solution, you tend to reduce costs to the healthcare system, reduce the time that patients spend in hospital, and that, that can only be a good thing. Then if you had the power to make phage therapy workable, what, what would you need to make that happen? I think the reality at the end of the day, it always comes down to money. I would love the power for a little bit more clinical data and acceptance and development of either new antibiotics or phage therapies or any other solution to antimicrobial resistance that we can get our arms around. I think uh, for the healthcare system overall, it's an imperative. And I think we need to be forward-looking on this issue. For Stephanie Strathdee and Tom Patterson, being forward-looking is a way of life. It's clear they believe that phage therapy is the future. And I also wanted to know what's next in their future. Travel is on the horizon, much more of it. You know, we've already been to Costa Rica, Africa, about to go off to Canada. Tom, if you had the power to change anything in the, in the future of medicine based upon what's happened to you, your own personal experience, can you think of what that might be? I would say that um, the one message I'd like to get through is there's growing evidence, and I think I myself am evidence-based hope that this therapy really does work. And my hope is that thousands and thousands of lives will be saved as a result of my case. A goal that now seems possible because of his experience. Patrick Wood says that he sees the potential of phage therapy as part of a broader, hopeful trend in healthcare. I think one of the most encouraging things about a healthcare system now is just how good we have it relative to many prior generations. 30 years ago, if you were to have your knee replaced, you'd be in the hospital for three weeks. Nowadays, you can be going home and spending time with your loved ones in one day. It's unbelievable. And so many other areas like minimally invasive surgeries and our understanding of the human body, it's just extraordinary. The generations that come after us will have healthier, longer lives. That's really what healthcare is about. We've explored a century-old remedy for a modern-age medical problem. We've also gone this season from a factory that turns plastic bottles into fiber to how we could harness solar power from space and much more. We've asked visionaries all over the globe what kind of future they want to create. What would you like the power to do? This is the final episode of this season of The World to Come. If you haven't heard the others, please go back and listen. You can find out more about the series at bankofamerica.com slash world to come. I'm Tess Vigland. Thanks for listening. B of A Merrill Lynch Global Research is research produced by B of A Securities, Inc., B of A.S., and or one or more of its non-U.S. affiliates. B of A.S. is a registered broker-dealer, member SIPC, and wholly owned subsidiary of Bank of America Corporation. 
Any opinions or other information correspond to the date of this recording and are subject to change. This information discusses general market activity, industry, or sector trends, or other broad-based economic, market, or political conditions and should not be construed as research or investment advice. Bank of America N.A. Member FDIC, Copyright 2019, Bank of America Corporation. 